Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good evening, everyone. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this evening. Um, As you know, it's Advent season, and uh, as I was thinking about the season, recognizing that we had our children's um, performance this morning, and it was just so good, I was kind of toying with what I should do this evening, and um, we've been talking about the gifts of the Magi, the wise men, and uh, I read a story a while back, and um, I'm going to do something tonight that I have never done in over 40 years of ministry, so you're here on a record night, at least for me, because um, normally we go to the Bible and we um, are in the Word, and if you're a visitor with us, um, this, is not, this is not a normal. But what I plan to do this evening is read you a story, okay? So if you love stories, you might uh, like to put your feet up and uh, kick back and listen. If you came for the preaching and you, you know, want the Word of God, you might like quietly to crawl um, <laughs> between the seats and just make your way out, okay? Um, A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the wise men, and I talked about where they came from, and I suggested to you that they were probably Nabataeans rather than Persians, and we talked a little bit about that, and tonight I'm going to do a complete reversal and read you a story about three wise men from Persia. (laughs) So, okay, I'm schizophrenic, I acknowledge it. Um, I don't know whether I'll ever do this again, but you were there, okay? The story is called The Fourth Wise Men, a uh, wise man, rather. It's by Henry Van Dyke. Um, I'm not reading the whole story because we'd be here till uh, much later, but uh, there are portions where I'll skip, and I'll probably tell you I'm skipping here, all right? So here we go. You know the story of the three wise men of the East and how they traveled from far away to offer their gifts at the manger cradle in Bethlehem. But have you ever heard the story of the other wise man? who also saw the star in its rising and set out to follow it, yet did not arrive with his brethren in the presence of the young child Jesus, of the great desire of this fourth pilgrim and how it was denied and yet accomplished in the denial, of his many wanderings and and the probations of his soul, of the long way of his seeking and the strange way of his finding the one whom he sought. In the days when Augustus Caesar was master of many kings, and Herod reigned in Jerusalem, there lived in the city of Ecbatana, among the mountains of Persia, a certain man named Artaban the Median. Then there's a whole story about his dwelling, I mean his lineage and so on that I'm missing out, but it goes on. Around the dwelling of Artaban spread a fair garden, a tangle of flowers and fruit trees, watered by the score of streams descending from the slopes of Mount Orontes, and made musical by innumerable birds. On this particular evening, all colours was lost in the soft and odorous darkness of the late September night, and all sounds were hushed in the deep charm of its silence. The master of the house was holding counsel with his friends. He stood in the doorway to greet his guests, a tall, dark man of about 40 years, with brilliant eyes set near together under a broad brow, and firm lines graven around his fine, thin lips, the brow of a dreamer and the mouth of a soldier, a man of sensitive feeling but inflexible will, one of those who, in whatever age they may live, are born for inward conflict and the life of quest. 
His robe was of pure white wool thrown over a tunic of silk, and a white pointed cap with long lapels at the sides rested on his flowing black hair. It was the dress of the ancient priesthood of the Magi. Welcome, he said in his low, pleasant voice as one after another entered the room. You are all welcome, and this house grows bright with the joy of your presence. There were nine of the men, differing widely in age, but alike in the richness of their dress, of the many-colored silks, and in their massive golden collars around their necks, marking them as Parthian nobles, and in the winged circles of gold resting upon their breasts, the sign of the followers of Zoroaster. He turned to his friends and invited them to be seated on the divan at the western end of the room. Hear me then, my friends, said Artaban very quietly, while I tell you of a new light and truth that have come to me through the most ancient of all signs. We have searched the secrets of nature together. We have read also the books of prophecy in which the future is dimly foretold in words that are hard to understand. But the highest of all learning is the knowledge of the stars. To trace their course is to untangle the threads of the mystery of life from the beginning to the end. If we could follow them perfectly, nothing would be hidden from us. He drew from the breast of his tunic two small rolls of fine linen with writing upon them and unfolded them carefully upon his knee. In the years that are lost in the past, long before our fathers came into the land of Babylon, there were wise men in Chaldea from whom the first of the Magi learned the secrets of the heavens. Of these, Balaam, the son of Beor, was one of the mightiest. Hear the words of his prophecy. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. The Hebrew Daniel, the mighty searcher of dreams, the counselor of kings, the wise Belshazzar, who was most honored and beloved of our great king Cyrus, a prophet of sure things and a reader of the thoughts of God, Daniel proved himself to our people, and these are the words that he wrote. Artaban read from the second scroll. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore Jerusalem unto the anointed one, the prince, the time shall be seven and threescore and two weeks. It has been shown to me and to my three companions among the Magi, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, that we have, searched the, we have searched the ancient tablets of Chaldea and computed the time. It falls in this year. We have studied the sky, and in the spring of the year we saw two of the great stars draw near together in the sign of the fish, which is in the house of the Hebrews. We also saw a new star there, which shone for one night and then vanished. Now again the two great planets are meeting. This night is their conjunction. My three brothers are watching at the ancient temple of seven spheres in Babylonia, and I am watching here. If the star shines again, they will wait ten days for me at the temple, and we will set out together for Jerusalem to see and worship the promised one who shall be born king of Israel. I believe the sign will come. I have made ready for the journey. I have sold my house and my possessions and brought these three jewels, a sapphire, a ruby, and a pearl, to carry them as a tribute to the king. And I ask you to go with me on the pilgrimage that we may have joy together in finding the prince who is worthy to be served. While he was speaking, he thrust his hand into the innermost fold of his girdle and drew out three great gems, one blue as the fragment of the night sky, one redder than the ray of a sunrise, and one pure as the peak of a snow-covered mountain at twilight, and he laid them on his outspread linen scrolls before him. But his friends looked on with strange alien eyes. A veil of doubt and mistrust came over their faces like fog creeping up from the marshlands to hide the hills. 
They glanced at each other with looks of wonder and pity as those who have listened to incredible sayings, the story of a wild vision or the proposal of an impossible enterprise. One said, Artaban, this is a vain dream. It comes from too much looking upon the stars. Another said, Artaban, I have no knowledge of these things and my role as guardian of the royal treasure binds me here. Another said, in my house sleeps a new bride and I cannot leave or, her or take her on such a strange journey. The quest is not for me, but may your steps be prospered wherever you go. Farewell. Another, I am ill and unfit for such hardship. So one by one they departed and Artaban was left in solitude. At this point I'm skipping over quite a portion of the story that tells of Artaban's beginnings and, uh, and his ride to meet his companions in Babylon. It was three hours' journey yet to the temple of the seven spheres, and he must reach the place by midnight if he would find his com comrades waiting. He did not halt, but rode steadily on. Vasta, his faithful horse, slackened her pace and began to pick up her way more carefully. She scented some danger or difficulty. At last, she gave a quick breath of anxiety and dismay and stood stock still, quivering in every muscle, before a dark object in the shadow of a palm tree. Artaban dismounted. The dim starlight revealed the form of a man lying across the road. His humble dress and the outline of his haggard face showed that he was probably one of those poor Hebrew exiles who still dwelt in great numbers in the vicinity. His pallid skin, dried and yellow as parchment, bore the mark of a deadly fever which ravished the marsh lands in autumn. The chill of death was in his lean hand, and as Artaban released it, the arm fell inertly back on, upon the motionless breast. He turned away with a thought of pity, but as he turned away, a long, faint, ghostly sigh came from the man's lips. The brown, bony fingers closed convulsively on the hem of the Magi's robe and held him fast. Artaban's heart leapt to his throat, not with fear, but with a dumb resentment at the importunity of this blind delay. How could he stay in the darkness and minister to a dying stranger? What claim had this unknown fragment of human life upon his compassion or his service? If he lingered even for an hour, he could hardly meet his companions at the appointed hour. They would think that he had given up the journey. They would go without him. He would lose his quest. But if he went on now, the man would surely die. If he stayed, life might yet be restored. Should he risk the great reward of his divine faith for a single deed of human love? Should he turn aside, even if for a moment, from following the star to give a cup of cold water to a poor perishing Hebrew? He turned back to the sick man. Loosening the grasp of his hand, he carried him to a little mound at the foot of a palm tree. He bought water from one of the small canals nearby and moistened the sufferer's brow and mouth. He mingled a draught of one of those simple but potent remedies that he always carried in his girdle, for magi were physicians as well as astrologers. Hour after hour he laboured as only a skilful healer of disease can do, and at last the man's strength returned. He sat up and looked, looked about him. Who are you, he said, in the rude dialect of the country, and why have you sought me and brought me back to life? I am Artaban, a magi from the city of Ekbatana, and I am going to Jerusalem in search of the one who is born to be king of the Jews, a great prince and deliverer of all men. I dare not delay any longer upon my journey, for the caravan that has waited for me may depart without me. The Jew raised a trembling hand to heaven and said, May the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob bless you and prosper your journey. I have nothing to give you in return for your kindness. Only this I can tell you, where the Messiah must be sought. Our prophets have said that he should be born, not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem of Judea. May the Lord bring you safely to that place. 
It was already long past midnight, Artaban rode in haste. Upon arriving at the Temple of the Seven Spears, he could discern no trace of his friends. At the edge of a terrace, he saw a little can of broken bricks, and under them a piece of parchment. He caught it up and read, We have waited past the midnight and can delay no longer. We go to find the king. Follow us across the desert. Artaban sat down upon the ground and covered his head in despair. How can I cross the desert with no food and a spent horse? I must return to Babylon and sell my sapphire and buy a train of camels and provisions for my journey. I may never overtake my friends, but I would not lose sight of the king because I tarried to show mercy to a stranger. Again, I'm skipping a portion of the story that takes him back to Babylon and then across the desert sands toward Judea. He traveled steadily until he arrived in Bethlehem. It was the third day after the wise men had come to that place and had found Joseph and Mary with the young child and had laid their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh at his feet. Artaban drew near, weary but full of hope, bearing his ruby and his pearl to offer to the king. For now at last I shall find him, he said, though it be alone and later than my brethren. I must inquire about the visit of my brethren and to what house the star directed them and to whom they presented their tribute. The streets of the village seemed to be deserted. From the open door of a low stone cottage he heard a sound of a woman's voice singing softly. He entered and found a young mother hushing her baby to rest. She told him of the strangers from the Far East who had appeared in the village three days ago and how they had said a star had guided them to the place where Joseph of Nazareth was lodging with his wife and their newborn child and how they had paid reverence to the child and paid him many expensive gifts. But the travellers disappeared again, she continued, as suddenly as they had come. We were afraid at the strangeness of their visit. We could not understand it. The man of Nazareth took the babe, his mother, and fled that same night secretly, and it was whispered that they were going far away to Egypt. Ever since, there has been a spell upon the village. Something evil hangs over it. They say that the Roman soldiers are coming from Jerusalem to force a new tax upon us, and the men have driven the flocks and herds back into the hills and hidden themselves to escape it. Artaban listened to her gentle, timid speech, and the child in her arms looked up in his face and smiled, stretching out its rosy hand to grasp at the winged circle of gold on his breast. His heart warmed to the touch. It seemed like a greeting of love and trust to one who had journeyed long in loneliness and perplexity, fighting with his own doubts and fears and following a light that was veiled in clouds. Might not this child have been the promised prince, he asked within himself as he touched its soft cheek. Kings have been born before now in lowlier houses than this. The favourite of the stars may rise even from a cottage. But it had not seemed good to the God of wisdom to reward my search so soon or so easily. The one whom I seek has gone before me, and now I must follow the king to Egypt. The young mother laid her child in the cradle and rose to minister to the wants of the strange guest that fate had brought into her house. She set food before him, the plain fear of peasants, but willingly offered and therefore full of refreshment for the soul as well as for the body. Artaban accepted it gratefully, and as he ate, the child fell into a happy slumber and a great peace filled the room. But suddenly there came the noise of wild confusion and the uproar in the streets of the village, a shrieking and wailing of women's voices, a clangor of brazen trumpets and clashing of swords and a desperate cry, the soldiers, the soldiers of Herod, they are killing our children. The young mother's face grew white with terror and she clasped her child to her bosom and crouched motionly in the darkest corner of the room, covering him with the folds of her robe lest he should wake and cry. 
Artaban went quickly and stood in the doorway of the house, his broad shoulders filling the portal from side to side, and the peak of his white cap all but touched the lintel. The soldiers came hurrying down the street with bloody hands and dripping swords. At the sight of the stranger in his imposing dress, they hesitated with surprise. The captain of the band approached the threshold to thrust him aside, but Artaban did not stir. His face was as calm as though he was watching the stars, and in his eyes there burned that steady radiance, before which even a half-tamed hunting leopard shrinks, and the fierce bloodhound pauses in his leap. He held the soldier silently for an instant, and then said in a low voice, There is no one in this place but me, and I am waiting to give this jewel to the prudent captain who will leave me in peace. He showed the ruby glistening in his hand like a great drop of blood. The captain was amazed at the splendor of the gem. The pupil of his eyes expanded with desire and the hard lines of greed wrinkled around his lips. He stretched out his hand, took the ruby and said, March on, there is no child here. The clamor and clang of arms passed down the street as the headlong fury of the chase sweeps by the secret covert where the trembling deer is hidden. Artaban re-entered the cottage. He turned his face to the east and prayed, God of truth, forgive my sin. I have said the thing that is not to save the life of the child, and two of my gifts have gone. I've spent for man that which was meant for God. Shall I be ever worthy to see the face of my king? But the voice of the woman weeping for joy in the shadow behind him said very gently, because thou hast saved the life of my little one, may the Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Story moves on, Artaban makes his way to Egypt in search of the child. He moved among the throngs of men in populous Egypt, seeking everywhere for traces of the household that had come down from Bethlehem, and finding them under the spreading sycamore trees of Heliopolis and beneath the walls of the Roman fortress of the New Babylon beside the Nile, traces so faint and dim that they vanish before him continually as the footprints on the hard river sand glisten for a moment with the moisture and then disappear. He was seen again at the foot of the pyramids, which lifted their sharp points into the intense saffron glow of the sunset sky. He looked into the vast countenance of the crouching sphinx and vainly tried to read the meaning of her calm eyes and smiling mouth. Was it indeed the mockery of all effort and aspiration, or was there a touch of pity and encouragement in that inscrutable smile, a promise that even the defeated should attain a victory, and the disappointed should discover a prize, and the ignorant should be made wise, the blind should see, and the wandering should come at last into the haven? He was seen again in an obscure house in Alexandria, taking counsel with a Hebrew rabbi. The venerable man bending over the rolls of parchment on which the prophecies of Israel were written, read aloud the pathetic words which foretold the sufferings of the promised Messiah, the despised and rejected of men, and the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And remember, my son, he said, fixing his deep-set eyes on Artaban, the king whom you are seeking is not to be found in a palace, nor among the rich and the powerful. If the light of the world and the glory of Israel had been appointed to come with the greatness of earthly splendor, it must have come long ago, for no son of Abraham will ever rival the power which Joseph had in the palaces of Egypt, or the magnificence of Solomon thrown between the lions in Jerusalem. But the light for which the world is waiting is a new light, the glory that shall rise out of a patient and triumphant suffering, and the kingdom which is to be established forever is a new kingdom, the royalty of perfect and unconquerable love. I do not know how this shall come to pass, nor how the turbulent kings and peoples of the earth shall be brought to acknowledge the Messiah and pay homage to him, but this I know. 
Those who seek him will do well to look among the poor and the lowly and the sorrowful and the oppressed. Artaban traveled from place to place, searching among the people of the dispersion with whom the little family from Bethlehem might perhaps have found refuge. He passed through countries where famine lay heavy upon the land and the poor were crying for bread. He made his dwelling place in plague-stricken cities where the sick were languishing in the bitter companionship of helpless mercy, misery. Sorry. He visited the oppressed and afflicted in the gloom of subterranean prisons and the crowded wretchedness of slave markets and the weary toil of galley ships. In all this populous and intricate world of anguish, though he found none to worship, he found many to help. He fed the hungry and clothed the naked. He healed the sick and comforted the captive. And his years went by more quickly than the weaver's shuttle that flashes backwards and forwards through the loom while the web grows and the invisible pattern is completed. Three and thirty years of Artaban had passed away and he was still a pilgrim and a seeker after light. His hair, once darker than the cliffs of Zagros, was now white as the wintry snow that covered them. His eyes that once flashed like flames of fire were dull as embers smouldering among the ashes. Worn and weary and ready to die, but still looking for the king, he had come for the last time to Jerusalem. He had often visited the holy city before and had searched through all its lanes and crowded hovels and black prisons without finding any trace of the family of Nazarenes who had fled from Bethlehem long ago. But now it seemed as if he must make one last effort, and something whispered in his heart that at last he might succeed. It was the season of Passover. The city was thronging with strangers. The children of Israel scattered in far lands all over the world had returned to the temple for the great feast, and there had been a confusion of tongues in the narrow streets for many days. But on this day there was a singular agitation, visible in the multitude. The sky was veiled with a portentous gloom, and the currents of excitement seemed to flash through the crowd like the thrill which shakes the forest on the eve of a storm. A secret tide was sweeping them all in one way. The clatter of sandals and the soft, thick sound of thousands of bare feet shuffling over the stones flowed unceasingly along the streets that led to the Damascus Gate. Artaban joined a company with a group of people from his own country, Parthian Jews who had come to keep the Passover, and he inquired of them the cause of the tumult and where they were going. We are going, they replied, to a place called Golgotha, outside the city walls, where there is to be an execution. Have you not heard what has happened? Two famous robbers are to be crucified, and with them another called Jesus of Nazareth, a man who has done many wonderful works among the people so that they love him greatly. But the priests and elders have said he must die because he gave himself out to be the Son of God, and Pilate sent him to the cross because he said that he was the King of the Jews. How strangely those familiar words fell upon the tired heart of Artaban. They had led him for a lifetime over land and sea, and now they came to him darkly and mysteriously like a message of despair. The king had arisen, but he'd been denied and cast out. He was about to perish. Perhaps he was already dying. Could it be the same who had been born in Bethlehem 33 years ago, at whose birth the star had appeared in the heaven, and, whose coming the prophet, and of whose coming the prophets had spoken? Artaban's heart beat unsteadily with that troubled, doubtful apprehension which is the excitement of old age. But he said within himself, the ways of God are stranger than the ways of men, and it may be that I shall find the king at last in the hands of his enemies and shall come in time to offer my pearl for his ransom before he dies. So the old man followed the multitude with slow, painful steps toward the Damascus gate of the city. 
Just beyond the entrance of the guard's house, a troop of Macedonian soldiers came down the street, dragging a young girl with a torn dress and dishevelled hair. As Ataban, Ataban paused to look at her with compassion, she suddenly broke free from the hands of her tormentors and threw, himself, threw herself at his feet, clasping him around the knees. She had seen the white cap and the winged circle on his breast. Have pity on me, she cried, and save me for the sake of the God of purity. I also am a daughter of the true religion which is taught by the Magi. My father was a merchant of Parthia, but he's dead, and I am seized for his debts to be sold as a slave. Save me from a fate worse than death. Ardaban trembled. It was the old conflict in his soul which had come to him in the palm grove of Babylon and in the cottage of Bethlehem, the conflict between the expectation of faith and the impulse of love. Twice the gift he had consecrated to the worship of religion had been drawn from his hand in the service of humanity. This was the third trial, the ultimate probation, the final and irrevocable choice. Was this his greatest opportunity or his last temptation? He couldn't tell. One thing only was clear in the darkness of his mind. It was inevitable. And does not the inevitable come from God? One thing only was sure to his divided heart. To rescue this helpless girl would be a true deed of love. And is not love the light of the soul? He took the pearl from his bosom. Never had it seemed so luminous, so radiant, so full of tender, loving luster. And he laid it in the hand of the slave. This is thy ransom, daughter. It is the last of my treasures which I kept for the king. While he spoke, the darkness of the sky thickened and shuddering tremors ran through the earth, heaving convulsively like the breast of one who struggled with mighty grief. The walls of the houses rocked to and fro and stones were loosened and crashed into the street. Dust clouds filled the air. The soldiers fled in terror, reeling like drunken men, but Artaban and the girl he had ransomed crouched helplessly beneath the wall. What had he to fear? What had he to live for? He'd given away the last remnant of his tribute for the king. He'd parted with the last hope of finding him. The quest was over. It had failed. But even in that thought, accepted and embraced, there was peace. It was not resignation. It was not submission. It was something more profound and searching. He knew that all was well because he had done the best that he could from day to day. He had been true to the light that had been given to him. He had looked for more. And if he had not found it, if a failure was all that came out of his life, doubtless that was the best that was possible. He had not seen the revelation of life everlasting, incorruptible and immortal. But he knew that even if he could live his earthly life over again, it could not be otherwise than it had been. One more lingering pulsation of the earthquake quivered through the ground and a heavy tile shaken from the roof fell and struck the old man on the temple. He lay breathless and pale with his grey head resting on the young girl's shoulder, blood trickling from the wound. As she bent over him, fearing that he was dead, there came a voice through the twilight, very small and still, like music sounding from a distance, in which the notes are clear but the words are lost. The girl turned to see if someone had spoken from the window above them, but she saw no one. Then the old man's lips began to move as if in answer, and she heard him say in the Parthian tongue, Not so, my lord, for when saw I thee hunger and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw I thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? When saw I, when saw I thee sick or in prison and came to thee? Three and thirty years I've looked for thee, but I have never seen thy face nor ministered to thee, my king. He ceased, and the sweet voice came again, and again the maid heard it very faintly and far away. 
But now it seemed that she understood the words. Verily, I say unto thee, inasmuch as thou hast done it to these, the least of my brethren, thou hast done it to me. A calm radiance of wonder and joy lighted the pale face of Artaban like the first ray of the dawn on a snowy mountain peak. One long last breath of relief exhaled gently from his lips. His journey was ended. His treasures were accepted. The other wise man had found the king. You know what? In ancient times, I'm not reading now, okay? This is, this is the preach, and it's only about this long, right? In ancient times, it was really understood that how you treated the God's image was how you treated the God. So to honor the God, you honored his image. The ancients weren't stupid. They knew that the idol wasn't God. It represented God. But they understood that the way they treated the image was, in fact, the way that you treated the God. How you treated the image was how you treated God. Yahweh's image, the God that we serve, his image isn't some inert statue. If you want to know what the image of God is, you read the book of Genesis. He made man in his own image. Male and female, he made them. You know, the image of God is all around us. And I want to just say to you tonight, how you treat that image is how you treat God. No more, no less. In John's epistles, he said, it's impossible to say that you love God and then you mistreat the images of God. You know, we come in our Christmas season and for many people it's a season of incredible joy and family reunions and all kinds of things, but you and I both know in many instances it is not such a good season because families come together and don't treat one another well. They hold resentments and bitterness and long-standing um, resentment and, and all kinds of stuff goes on at Christmas. People consume too much alcohol and, and turn on their spouse or their children. And the way we treat the image is the way we treat God. And I, I just wanted to challenge you this evening that this Christmas time, bear that in mind. You are surrounded by images of God and the way you take time to treat them is, is profoundly um, representative of how you think and feel about God. So to say that you worship God and to mistreat people, to be um, impatient, to be angry, to possibly even be violent is completely out of line with those of us who worship God. You know, um, Jesus said, how you treat the least of these is actually how you treat me. He identifies with the vulnerable. He identifies with the downtrodden. How we treat them matters. You're going to see people this Christmas that are incredibly needy in the midst of your shopping frenzies. Recognize them. Don't just step over them. Take time to minister to them. And, and I don't mean by being super spiritual and praying for them. I mean maybe take something out of your wallet. Think about them. How you treat them is absolutely incredible and important, profound. I think I'll leave it at that, okay? So, you'll be able to say, you were there the night Don didn't preach from the Word, but he read a story. Pray God he never does it again.
Would you like to stand with me? Father, we thank you for um, the incredible kindness and grace that you have shown us. We sang before, Lord, we don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. But you have reached out to us and profoundly touched our lives. In this season and throughout the seasons, we ask that you would tender our heart toward the images of God that we are surrounded by. Those that we live with, those that we work with, those that we live among, the people, Father, that we pass on the street, would you help us to see with fresh eyes? We've been talking over this Advent season about seeing with fresh eyes, and Jesus, we ask that you would anoint our eyes with our eye salve so that we might see with fresh eyes the people that are around about us and that creatively you would help us to bless the needy, the vulnerable, um, the people that just need a kind word, would you help us, Lord? We want to be people that rightly represent you in the earth. So help us in this season, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Hey, I was just thinking of something and it kind of slipped my mind, but it strikes me, you know, that there'd be some people that say, oh, you know, it's all very well done, you know, to talk about the vulnerable and the needy. And I know there are people who live on the dumps in Manila and, and uh, you know, some of the terrible... Um, problems that you see in the third world, and, and it's kind of easy to push that out and think, you know, one day, one day I might be able to do something to help them. And it struck me the other day that, you know, there might be some young mums even here, and you're thinking, well, you know, one day when I get through this, I might serve the needy. And, and you know, um, your kids say, I'm hungry, and you feed them. Your kids say, I'm sick, and you look after them. Sometimes your kids are naked and you clothe them. Sometimes you visit them, hopefully not in prison, but in time out, <laughs> which is their prison. And yet, you know, you think, one day, Lord, I'll look after the vulnerable. We are surrounded by vulnerable. Fresh eyes to see the people around us who are the image of God and who, as we touch, and as we minister to these, the least of his brethren, we do it to him. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.